is finished. I am forgiven. I'm not defined by the things that I've done. Which the setting of the table here. Uh, we're gonna start gathering back together on Sunday night at uh, six o'clock. So we're uh, gonna do a little hot dog thing here. Be outside on the twelfth. So it'll be the Sunday after Labor Day, and um, bring you a folding chair. I don't think you need any folding money, though. I think everything will be free. That sound good, Andrew? That sound good to you? <laughs> uh, we'll get out here in the shade under the shade tree over here by the annex side, and we'll eat hot dogs, have fellowship, and have a quick devotion. So, all right, we're we're in Luke chapter eleven. If you have your Bibles, uh, gra- grab those and turn with me to Luke chapter eleven verses. Uh, 37 is where we're going to start. Before I begin this, let me just say a couple things about where we are. For if you're with us for the first time and the first time in a long time, we've been working through the Gospel of Luke. And here we are on a timetable. The Lord has a perfect timetable. If you've been joining us on Wednesdays, you know uh, we've been looking at you know God's judgment being on a timetable and things moving and progressing for that judgment to take place. And and here is going to be the beginning of a, it's the beginning of the journey to the cross. It is the escalate, this is the start of the heightened escalation of Jesus going to the cross. Have you ever been to a dinner at somebody's house and things got weird and awkward? Like there was like some things that were said that were either inappropriate or hateful or both. And you just sort of hung your head down and like looked at your mashed potatoes and peas and didn't really say much. Or maybe you're the kind of person, you're bold enough to be the one that was in the mix of the fight. I don't know which one it is. Uh, we're going to see a, a, a situation here that's going to have the same kind of a feel to it. This text has that same kind of a feel to it, to an awkward dinner like that. We're picking up here where Jesus had healed somebody who had a demon and was mute. And he... Uh, people reacted in different ways. Some of them marveled at Jesus. Some of them rejected Jesus. Uh, and then some of them just aren't sure what to do with him. And so in honor of the work that he has done, he has been invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's house. Now, uh, to give you a little context here, Pharisees were people who, they were the professional clergy of the day. Uh, they were the ones who were trying in the midst of a very pagan culture that surrounded them, right? The Romans were very pagan. If they conquered a people, they just sort of added that God to their, to their mantle and their shelf. And the, the Jews very much resisted that. The Pharisees, the clergy of the day said, no, we're going to remain righteous. We're going to remain pure before God. We're going to keep the law. And so in an effort to try to remain pure and distinct and different from that culture that was so paganistic around them, they kind of built laws on top of laws on top of laws and introduce like legalism on that. So uh, is, is what we're going to see here is Jesus is going to come into a direct clash with that religious legalistic culture that the Pharisees had built in an effort to keep themselves pure, righteous, and removed. So let's look at the Word of God together. Hear the Word of God, church. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Verse 37, I can't, can you advance it? 38, the Pharisees was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now 
you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, do not, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplace. Is marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. <clears throat> One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. Let me, let me pause for just a second here and explain who this is. There were Pharisees who are the professional clergies, and then there was like the lawyers or the scribes. Sometimes in passages, that's the same people. These are the people who devoted all of their time. Excuse me, I feel like I'm about to sneeze. These are the people who, who devoted all their time to the study of the Torah, to the study of the Scriptures. These were people that knew where every Levitical law was, every verse was, what scroll it was, and where to find it on the scroll. So they're a little different than the Pharisees, but there still is similarities with them, okay? A little, little bit of a distinction there. All right, one of the lawyers answered him saying, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said... Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be changed, may be charged against this generation. For from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Amen. May God have blessed in the reading of his holy inerrant and infallible word and I pray he will write this truth on all of our hearts today <clears throat> what if Jesus was coming to dinner at your house what would you do to prepare your home for the creator sustainer the God of this world to, to come and dine at your table and what would that conversation be like as you ate with him you ever thought about that um, let's, let's dive into this here. This, this is obviously setting up here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are, the Pharisees and the scribes, the lawyers, are going to be on the complete opposite end of where Jesus is. As he is going and healing and giving glimpses of the kingdom to come. 
calling people to the grace of God, they stand in sharp contrast, right? Uh, in verses uh, we have seen previously, I want you to notice a few things here, right? Luke here in this chapter is revealing the conflict that is going to take Jesus to the cross. It is being exposed here. In addition to that, he's also revealing the character and the purpose of Jesus to take us with him, right? Why did he write this? He write this, so Theopolis, that you may come to know. Jesus Christ. He is giving a record of what has happened. Why are we going through the book of Luke? So we all may know Jesus Christ with certainty here at Grace Baptist Church. I want you to notice four things here. Four things in chapter 11 to give you the wider context of this. First of all, verse 20 talks about what? The finger of God. What is Luke doing? What is God doing in this chapter verse? Well, he's, he is releasing the power of God. Jesus is releasing God's power. No one possesses that power. Remember what they said? He does this by the power of Satan. He casts out demons. And Jesus says, no, it's by the finger of God that I'm able to do these things. Second, the word of God is being revealed. What is the word of God? What is scripture? It is commonly called the revelation of his person, right? If you are, if you are revelating, you are revealing who they are. And might, might I say this, this is the means that God has provided to reveal who he is to your life. Aren't you glad that it's written down? Because listen, if you're like me, the shortest pencil is better than my longest memory, right? Uh, to be written down is to be captured exactly as intended and revealed precisely as, can, as intended. And so God has made sure His person is being revealed in the revelation in the Word of God. Third thing we see, verse 42, we're introduced to it here. God is requirement of his people. He wants us to long for justice and the love of God in verse 42. And then finally in verse 49, we see the wisdom of God. There is a relentless purpose that God is pursuing here and it will not be stopped. He is relentless in this pursuit of revealing himself, seeking to, to reveal his love and for justice to be satisfied in that process. So that's kind of a big picture of chapter 11. Now let's get down to the nitty gritty of what's going on here. Jesus here is asked for over to this Pharisee's house for a dinner. But if you're going to eat with Jesus and you're a Pharisee, you must be prepared to dine on humility. That will be the main course. All right. Let's see if we can see this more clearly. Verses 37 through 40, we're getting a warning here. Right? The first thing, right out of the bat, uh, we're getting a warning. And it's sort of odd. We don't exactly have what happened, but let me give you the context of what happened, and I'll insert my thoughts as to what I think happened. The Pharisees, as I said, built laws upon laws upon laws. They had these sort of a washing base or vases that they had outside the temple, and you would baptizo, is the Greek word that was used, immerse your hands in that water. You would wash them to make yourself pure and clean to enter the temple. Well, the Pharisees took that a step further, and they not only included that for the temple, but they would include that for their homes. And so the expectation was, if you were coming to a Pharisee's home, you would baptizo your hands in this vase, wash them there. You know, baptizo means to completely immerse. That sounds awfully similar to a word we see in the New Testament, right? What does that sound like, baptizo? What's that sound like? Baptize, right? That's what it just means, immerse. You had to immerse your hands to make them pure and clean, before you eat because people go out here and they you know if you touch a dead body then your hands are down defiled if you if you touch 
you know, a dead animal, your hands are defiled. If you pet a dog or a touched a pig, your hands are defiled. So you've got to baptize those things before you sit down and eat. You don't want to, remember we talked about how undefiled, how easily it transfers and makes what is pure and clean defiled. So Jesus comes in and what's he do? He completely bypasses the baptizo, the hand washing. And he just sits down ready to eat, right? Uh, side note here, children. This does not mean it's okay for you not to wash your hands before dinner like your parents instructed you, right? I'm going to draw this out a little more and make this a little clear here. But <clears throat> And can you imagine the shock and the horror of this Pharisee? And he's not even named, I don't think. When Jesus just sits down ready to eat without baptizoing his hands, without washing his hands. Now, you will not find in Leviticus a requirement for hands to be baptized like that before you eat. So he's not violating any Levitical principles. He's not violating any Levitical verses here. He's not sinning by bypassing that. Jesus is sitting down this table because he knows what? He is pure, isn't he? He's not going to touch something and make it unpure or defile it. And when he eats it, it's going to be good. Here's one of the things I love about this chapter and this, this last part here is Jesus is sitting down at the table. He's ready to eat because food is good. Jesus is basically declaring here for us, food is good. And I'm very happy about that, aren't you? Right? I'm especially happy about whenever Peter had his vision in Acts and all these unclean animals came down in a little handkerchief, size God's eyed handkerchief, and, and he said, arise, Peter, and kill and eat. Right? So now crab legs and catfish are on the menu. Isn't that wonderful for God's people? Before that happened, that was not a possibility, right? Bacon was not a possibility. Now we can have bacon. Isn't that wonderful? We live in a time of great grace, don't we? Where these things have been declared good, kill and eat, and have your fill. All right, back to this little thing. Now, what happened here? And this is, this is me imagining what happened. So this is not gospel truth. I would imagine this Pharisee could not hide his shock and a touch of disgust at what Jesus has just done. I imagine either a raised eyebrow or both eyebrows, maybe a jaw that went slack. You know, something on his face communicated the shock and how dare he, the brazenness of which to sit down without baptizoing your hand. Have you lost it? What is the matter? You of all people, I thought you were a, a man of God. I thought you were a prophet of God. You know, here's the, here is the Pharisee's problem, right? He is fixated on the law. The law that really they created more than seeing that the Lord of the universe is sitting in front of them. He is, he is bothered by regulation of the culture more than he is uh, seeing that he has the ruler of all creation that is there. He is trying to subject the one who created all water to the water that he created. And for what goal and what purpose? Uh, the, you know, it, it always cracks me up to, I don't know if cracks me up, maybe sadden and cracks me up a little bit. When I read liberal theologians trying to make sense of passages in the New Testament. Because they'll say things like, well, see, the Phoenician woman here, uh, when Jesus says, even the, the, she says, even the dogs get the scraps off the table. See, you know, she was suppressed and uh, she corrected Jesus there. He had to learn, learn and grow. And, uh, he, and they say, see, Jesus was confined by the, by the religious and the social norms and structures of his day. 
And then comes along Luke chapter 11 where he totally 100% breaks the conventional uh, cultural restraints of his day and goes completely against that. It just goes to show you they don't know what they're talking about, right? Jesus doesn't learn and grow, right? He is God in human form. He doesn't learn and grow in knowledge. He has from the beginning all that he needs. And so in this passage here, what are we seeing here? What is the warning? Well, the warning is this. Jesus says, you clean the outside while remaining filthy inside. You clean the outside and remain filthy on the inside. What's the solution here? The solution is to give your inner life away. Give your inner life away. Let me tell you something. It is inevitable. This is about the inner being, the inner person. I, I want to make something very clear. I want to ask you some hard questions this morning because the text is making me ask you these questions. Okay, I want to, I want to take this like one preacher said. I'm going to put this in your kitchen, okay? You ready for this to go in your kitchen? Because here it comes. Are you more concerned when you have private sin in your life, whatever that is, if that's greed or lust or pornography or whatever that struggle is, that private sin that you have and God knows about it and you know about it, but it really wouldn't bother you unless everybody here at Grace Baptist Church knew about it or everybody in your community knew about it or everybody in your family knew about it. This is the reality of it, right? Does it bother you? Your private sins bother you enough to thrust you to repentance and brokenness before God Or would it bother you more if the people around you knew it, right? We are pretty good at pretending and and masking. And some of us have gotten into a rhythm of pretending like that lust and that greed and that, that longing for prominence. That's a common problem in churches. In fact, it is such a problem that Paul writes about that. So-and-so, don't have anything to do with him. He wants to be first. The, the, the desire to be first. And that's going to emerge in this text as well. You know it's there. God knows it's there. But you're fine as long as nobody else in this community knows it. That's a problem. That's a pharisaical heart and attitude. Let me tell you what flows out of that. Let me tell you what flows out of it. When you are content to live with that kind of strain and inconsistency in your life, you adopt grace killers. Okay? And what do I mean by that? Grace killers. Grace killers is adding something to the faith, adding something to the salvation, adding something. Because you just, you want to contribute, right? What one preacher said, if we were all just honest enough to say, How bad we truly are. Most of us would dare not say how truly sinful and bad we truly are before a holy God. And in the same breath, he said, but we're also skittish to think at the depth of the love of God and the grace of God to save us in spite of that. And when you are living in this inconsistency, the grace killers emerge. And this is where legalism is born. I'm going to tell you something. The flesh loves legalism. It loves it. The flesh loves to check off boxes, boy. Just check that box off. Makes you feel good. You know, the, the Bible talks about the circumcision party, right? Now, we know all these pagans are coming over here to Christ, and we love that, and that's great. But, but now, remember, Jesus was a Jew himself. 
And uh, these guys not only need to come over to Christ, but they also need to be circumcised, right? See, it's grace plus what? Circumcision. And it's flowing. These are grace killers. It's a grace killer. This is why Paul got so upset about that. He said, no, this is not, it's not grace plus circumcision. It's not grace plus this, not grace plus that. It's not grace plus anything. It's through the grace of God alone. Don't engage in this sin in your heart and then let it mutate into grace killers in your life. He goes on in verse 42. Another woe. Look what he says here in 42. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tie the mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. All right, what's he saying here? Going to their spice racks. Okay, I've got 90%. I'll give my 10% there and I'm covered. I'm good. Again, it's about checklists for them. It's about doing, it's about the what, not about the why. Uh, they're, they're wanting to make sure they, they meet these minimal requirements that the law has given. And all the while, they teeter on missing the point of worshiping the one true and living God. Let me see if I can drive this home with you with an illustration from my own life and my own family. When I went to the University of Tennessee, so this is not anywhere here locally, so you can't figure out what church this is. I had a family member, I would occasionally attend church with them. And this was a very, I would, I would say, legalistic, primitive type church. Um, missionaries were not allowed to use slides because that's worldly enticement to get the people in the church. One time a pastor recommended getting an air conditioner. They had like the old-timey like fans because I guess old-timey fans are more spiritual than air conditioners in their minds. And they said, no, air conditioning is worldly enticement to get them in the church. Um, they... Uh, would not eat in the church building. There were no fellowship halls. They would not hear of building a fellowship hall on the meeting grounds because, you know, in 1 Corinthians it says, don't you have houses to eat in, right? And so the argument there was, uh, you know, what Paul was saying is, for you, it's just about going and eating the meal. There's nothing spiritual about it. You're just filling your stomach. What they took it as, don't you ever eat in a church building ever? No cheeseburgers, no nothing, never, right? And so that was, their, that was their mindset. The only time they would have meals is they would have the, uh, they built some kind of like a picnic shelter thing or they would borrow the funeral home tent and they would bring in a wagon. They would eat outside the building because you were in deadly sin if you ever ate a cheeseburger in the church building, okay? Now, what I also found funny about this group is this. <clears throat> Before church, in between services and after services, Almost every leader of the church and most of the church family itself was gathered around the outside ashtrays, smoking like dragons. Like if you drove by the wrong side of the church, you would think the church building was on fire, right? Like there was that much smoke bellowing up from the group as, they, as you went by. And there would be people that would be in the worship service and they would, they would be having a dip of, of tobacco in their mouth. Now remember, you can't eat in here, but they've got this nasty skull Stuck down in her jaw, and amen, spitting in, her, spitting in a spit can or a spit cup during the preaching. But don't you eat a cheeseburger in here, right? Now, come on. Now, we look at something like that, and that is comical to us, isn't it? We say, are you kidding me? That is so much more disrespectful and much more, I mean, you know, I, I have spilt many a 
uh, mayonnaise or whatever, and Becky's had an easier time getting that out, then tobacco leaves a much deeper stain, right? It's much more defiling, right, if you're going to play that game. But uh, we can look at that and we can say, oh, that's terrible. But we do the same thing sometimes, right? We can be guilty of the same thing. What does it look like? Well, verse 43. An appearance instead of reality. Look at verse 43 with me. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the sanctuaries and greetings in the marketplace. Whenever they would read the Torah, the law, the closer you sat to the guy reading, the more knowledgeable you were thought to be in the community of the scriptures. So you were seated in a high place if you were seated next to the person reading the scrolls. So they would seek to have that position. And they loved when they went out to the marketplace, oh, thank you, Rabbi, whatever the address was. They absolutely loved and adored that. I'm going to give you a quick observation that uh, one pastor friend of mine made. And uh, we were talking about how many that are liberal Christians, how they're clergy dressed, they're supposed clergy. And have you ever noticed they try to wear these like, they wear robes and stoles and all, and collars and all this stuff. And I think I've only ever worn a robe in here one time, and that was for graduation Sunday, and that was to encourage our kids to keep going on and studying. And I'm going to tell you something. I hated it, and I was miserable the whole time I had the dumb thing on, all right? And I haven't worn it since then, okay? Years ago, preachers did used to wear some of those things. But in our culture now, it's like, you know, man, when you look at some of the things they write, you know, they have basically taken the gospel and the Bible and, well, we don't like the part about God telling people to go in and kill everybody. And we don't like the sexual ethic that's given in the Old Testament and then reaffirmed in Matthew 9 by Jesus himself and also in Romans chapter 1 and also in 1 Corinthians. We don't like those things. We're going to cut those things out. And it's just left with a carcass, a bone-picked carcass. And, and yet... Despite the fact they disbelieve so much in the Bible, it's like the more they disbelieve the Bible, the more they try to dress up and make themselves look on the outside like a minister. Isn't that interesting? Right? Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, I, I think the principle that's emerging here is God is concerned with what? Do you think God has a great care for how I dress when I deliver the gospel? I mean, assuming that my outfit's not distracting, right? God cares much more about what? What is on the inside? And not is on the outside. God cares about what? Have you given yourself to Christ to be cleansed fully and completely? The contamination is deep and it is internal. Verse 44. The contamination instead of purity is what they have. Look at, look at this in verse 44. Woe to you for you are like unmarked graves. And people walk over them without knowing. What is it that they don't know? They don't know that internally they are full of death, spiritually not life. They don't know what is truly below the surface. But Jesus is saying, I know. I see it. I see you for who you are. Then look at this. There is a, there is a shift here. Remember what I said about the lawyers and the scribes are saying, now wait a minute. I hear you getting on these Pharisees, but we're not like them. You're not lumping us in the same thing. And what does Jesus do? Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you. And what are the woes here? And I'm going to go through these quickly. So stay with me if you're a note taker. We'll do these real fast. Verses 45 through 46. They demand of others what they will not do. They demand of others what they will not do. One of the things that scares me to death as a preacher is this. 
that I will make it clear to you the what to do with your Christian life, but not the why or the how. The why and the how are just as critical as the what. You see, I don't want to be a graceless preacher. And these preachers are graceless preachers. That's what they are. They're graceless lawyers and scribes. They tell people to do things that they themselves have no intention of doing. (coughs) I want you to see the grace of God. And I want you to see the love of God. And I want our hearts to be compelled and constrained at the same time by the grace and the love of God to do what God has called us to do. I don't want you to just simply be constantly battling flesh and make it just all about this tiring war that you will not win. I want you to see. I want you to see Christ for who he is with his arms outstretched, his mercy that abounds, and his love and desire for justice that is there. That's what the text says this morning, that, that, we would de- that he wants to deal with your sin and make you right before God. He wants to purify and clean you, and that is what propels us to do what we need to do. Another woe that is here as well. Uh, verse 47, what does he say here? Can you... Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now, this, this, nervous, this verse makes a lot of people nervous because there is a, people get afraid about sins of their fathers. And I want to say this and make this very clear. You are only responsible for the sins you commit in your lifetime, however, comma. <laughs> that does not mean you don't have a heart like your fathers when they engaged in certain sins, right? Has the Bible not told us we were conceived in iniquity? Is there not a transference of sin to some degree from Adam that has gone down through every generation? Here's the deal. They are not responsible for killing the prophets, right? They built these massive tombs. They say, look, here is Micah, which, by the way, if you don't know who that is, come Wednesday night and find out 630 starting in September. Here's the tomb of Micah. Look how beautiful this is. We're so thankful for Micah's ministry. And he's saying what? You have the same heart of rejection in yourself. Even though you didn't kill him yourself, you built the tomb and you're not guilty of actually stoning him. But if you were alive, when your fathers were alive, you would have done the same thing, right? You would have rejected him all the same. That's what he says here. You hold the keys to knowledge. You know the scriptures and you're, point, you're not pointing them to me. You're poisoning them. You're poisoning them with the death and with the sin of the heart of the fathers that came before you. He's giving them here an invitation to lament. He even goes on to say, well, I'm going to hold this, the blood of the prophets on this generation, right? He's talking here about, you know, he's made clear their sin and they are not, re- they are not being broken and repenting of their sin, instead of lamenting, they don't repent. And, and I'm going to say this. I think in heaven there are various degrees of reward, but there are also various degrees of punishment in hell. And, and listen to me right now. If you're hearing me preach today, I'm preaching my heart out, preaching my guts out for you here. <clears throat> if you hear the call to salvation today, which has been made clear in this passage, Christ is calling you to repent, to be broken of your sin, to look deep inside yourself and see, are you clean or are you not? And you walk away. You are heaping destruction on yourself. You are heaping punishment on yourself in hell if you walk away from this message today. Uh, That's just the truth and reality of Scripture. Prevented others here from going to God and, and they are keeping them 
from knowing him and they are causing others to reject. They are like doctors who instead of helping to bring healing, cause the spread of a disease. Those who reject Jesus will spend their lives, now it says they're going to lie in wait, they're going to spend their lives trying to prove him wrong. Because at this juncture that they're at, when Jesus exposed your sin, you got three options. You're either going to reject him, you're going to receive him, or you're going to refashion him and remake him into a Jesus that you find more palatable. But there's only one of those that brings eternal life and true escape, and that is to receive him as he is. I want to, I want to give you a story. It's kind of a weird story. It's kind of a weird text. It's kind of a weird story, weird text. We have some friends from Indiana that had stopped in one time, and Beck and I were going to a wedding. We weren't going to stay at the reception. They were going to come in. I told Frank and Cindy, I said, come on in. Mi casa, su casa. You make yourself at home. You want a sandwich? Make yourself a sandwich. Want to watch TV? Watch TV. You want to take a nap? Lay down and take a nap. We're going to go to this wedding. We'll be back for the reception. It's fine. Make this house your home, okay? We go to the wedding, come back, come in the living room. We're not in the living room. Go in the kitchen, not in the kitchen. Go out back on the, on the patio area there. They're not back there. And this is kind of an impromptu thing where they had done that. It wasn't really planned out. They were just coming through the area. And, and I thought I heard somebody back in our bedroom. I keep our financial records back there, you know, like our... Uh, what, what we have paid the federal government and our tax returns and all that. And we got back there. Frank had my W-2s and all that out. And he was thumbing through them, picking them up, looking at them one at a time. And, and, uh, and Cindy was over at Becky's uh, undergarment drawer, picking them up, looking at them, saying, oh, this is lovely. And then laying them back down. And I was like, it was weird. I mean, it was uncomfortable. And I was like, guys, what are you doing? They're like, well, you said... Make your, make your house our house, and in our house we know where everything is and, and where, the, where the tax records are and all that, so we just took you at your word, and we made ourselves at home. And I said, guys, that's not what I meant, right? I didn't mean for you to come back here and go through our, our garment drawers our, our under, and look at our underwear and our tax. And he said, oh, by the way, I thought you made more money than that. I was like, well, you should know. No Baptist preacher makes a lot of money, right? And I made that story up. That was good, though, wasn't it? I completely made that up. That never happened. Drew you in, though, didn't it? Makes you think about telling that to somebody, doesn't it? But don't we kind of treat Jesus that way? Don't we tell Christ, come on into our heart and lives. But now, I don't mean have access to all my life. There's a few closets and there's a few doors in this life that are meant to be locked and shut. And Christ, I don't want you in there. Leave that alone. And what is Jesus telling us here? Jesus is telling us what? The only way to clean your inner life is for Christ to wash and fill it with himself. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word today. How true and how good and how right it is. And we, Lord, we bow before you and we know The only way we can be pure, the only way we can be righteous, the only thing we can do anything that is of you is to be filled with you first and foremost. Lord, help us today to wash the inner part, the the heart, to open it up wide to you and not to lock rooms off and not not to forbid you to go to certain places. Lord, we know the only way those places will become clean and pure is through opening them to you, Lord. 
Help us to do that this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now this morning I've primarily been speaking to those who have claimed to know Christ, claimed to be part of His body. But if you're here today and you realize, you know what? I don't know Christ. Won't you come today and be filled and washed and purified by the cross, by His blood? If you're here today and you've never accepted Christ, today is the day. Christ has been merciful and gracious. It's not an accident you landed here today. Won't you come and know Christ this morning? I'll be in the back to receive you as we sing in response. Please stand.